Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, John Craig, the author of The Ku Klux Klan in Western Pennsylvania, 1921 to 1928. John Craig, author of The Ku Klux Klan in Western Pennsylvania, 1921 to 1928. How much of the popular image of the Ku Klux Klan matches up with the reality of it? Well, I think most people's... Um you know, knowledge of the Ku Klux Klan comes from the more recent Klan, particularly the Klan of the Civil Rights Era or the Reconstruction Era Klan, the original Klan. They probably know less about the 1920s Klan, and yet that was the most powerful, largest Klan. So I would say probably most people don't know that much about the 1920s Klan, and they know more about uh, other reincarnate or a reincarnation of that Klan, the say 1950s, 1960s Klan, or they know about the original Night Riders of the of the Reconstruction era. So I think it's you know, valuable that they do know about the 1920s because it was you know, a larger organization. It, it had uh, you know, great influence in places like Pennsylvania. So it, you know, it, they should know about that, but they probably know less about the 20s than they do about the 60s or the 1870s. How big a deal was it in Pennsylvania in the 20s? Well, it's pretty big. I mean, the, the, the overall numbers in, in Pennsylvania were uh, 300,000. Uh, those numbers are pretty close to accurate. They're the they ba they're based on Klan records, they're based on the Klan's own accounting, and they didn't fake them because there was money involved. So um, those numbers reflected uh, money that went to different places uh, from the initiation fees. And so that 300,000 is, is probably pretty accurate. That doesn't mean there were 300,000 at any one time, because between 1921 or really 1922 and 1928, you know, people came and went, uh, or they came and they left and other people came. And, and so... Uh, because it was, um, you did pay an initial initiation fee if you were a Klan member, but you also had to pay yearly dues. And some people stopped paying the dues, no longer in the Klan. So it wasn't a for life uh, kind of thing. So probably there were no more than maybe 200,000, maybe a bit more than that at any one particular time, maybe in late 1924, 1925. And two-thirds of those were in the western part of the state. They were much more influential, much larger numbers in western Pennsylvania than in, in eastern Pennsylvania. What did it mean to be a member of the Klan? If you were in it, what did yeah. you do? Well, um, there were lots of activities that the, that the Klan uh, was, was involved in. They did change over time, as I dealt with in the book. Uh, even though we're looking at a fairly sh small period of time, 21 or 22 up to 28. <coughs> uh, um, but when you joined, um, you also had to buy a robe and hood. Uh, they cost $6 at the time in the 1920s. It was uh, actually the profit went directly to the national organization. And they were worn at events, and those events would be uh, official kinds of um, initiation ceremonies or rallies. Um, certainly they paraded. Uh, sometimes they paraded um, through their own hometown. Sometimes they joined others elsewhere. Sometimes they paraded in areas where a lot of Catholics lived so that there would be some conflict or at least a show of force. Um, 
they traveled to large rallies um, in, in other parts of the state, um, usually though also in, in western Pennsylvania, maybe into Ohio. Um, they had weekly, um, they had weekly, weekly me uh, no, uh, monthly meetings, uh, monthly meetings, um, sometimes weekly meetings. Um, so they did meet quite a bit. They were a lodge as well as, uh, I don't know, political organizations. So they, they met periodically, especially, of, uh, especially of course, in the winter months because you don't like marching around outside in, in, in February in uh, western Pennsylvania, if you can help it, right? So, um, so there were those kinds of activities. They were involved in some charitable, charitable activities. You say in the book they were, uh, they were chartered in Pennsylvania as a charitable and patriotic yes, organization. Yes, because uh, that was the, uh, you know, the easiest thing to do to, to give them certain rights. And if they, they certainly weren't going to say, you know, we're a vigilante group and we're, you know, you know we hate Catholics, uh, Jews, and blacks. Uh, so um, they, and in fact, uh, you know, it was revealed in a pretty well-known court case that basically the judge decided they were not a charitable organization and they really were not living up to their, uh, to the charter. But yes, that's true. And they were involved in some charitable activities. They gave money to churches and they gave flags to, to schools. Um, so they were involved in some of that. It wasn't uh, necessarily what was really important about being Klansmen, um, but nonetheless, uh, they were involved in, in a lot of a lot of activities, and a lot of those activities were secretive. Um, they did wear not just the robes but hoods, and they had visors with the hoods. And a, a lot of activities required keeping the visors down. So not just sort of secretiveness and mysteriousness, but uh, protecting their identities and anonymity was an important part of being a Klansman. It was part of the appeal, right, of being oh. a Klansman. Did, did everybody sort of know who the members were? Some places that was true, uh, that, it, that it was known. And sometimes people, you know, some people belong to the Klan were quite open about it. Uh, they'd be parading sometimes um, in, uh, in regalia and have the visors down, but then they'd say hi to friends and lift the visors up. So, yeah, it depended. Now, some people didn't want it known. And, again, as I dealt with in the book, that was really the greatest danger to the Klan was that uh, the, uh, you know, the veil of secrecy was broken. The uh, anonymity uh, for many of the members was, was shattered. They, 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 they needed anonymity, um, it seems, to maintain their, uh, their numbers and to increase their influence. So. Well, your, your front cover picture has a, a lot of Klan's members with no masks. That's right. So they right, knew there was right. a camera there. And that's right. And, and that picture is from 1925. And in 1925, there had been a shift in policy and with less wearing of visors, um, less, um, you know, less confrontational activities, in part because uh, confrontational activities in 1923 and 1924 had led to two major riots. Uh, and... Um, and, uh, and, and there had been some other riots, um, you know, nearby, for example, in, in Ohio. And uh, the Klan shifted, began to shift its, its uh, behavior a bit, its policies a bit, which, uh, by the way, did not help membership as it turned out. But, yeah, you're exactly right that uh, by 1925 you see more of that. But, you know, in 1922, 1923, 1924, you do not see a lot of images of the Klansmen with their visors uh, not down. With, you know, with their, their visors were usually the, the, the hoods and the visor part of the hood. They're, they're, they wore those stuff because they did want to maintain anonymity. Well, your book starts in 1921. Is that when the Klan started it in Pennsylvania? The very first uh, chapter, uh, it seems, appeared in, in Greensburg uh, late in the year 1921. 1922 was really the year of the first cross burnings and, and uh, 
the really the beginnings of the membership drive, um, but there there was certainly the initial activity in 21. The King Kliegel, as he was called, the chief recruiter for Western Pennsylvania. There was also one for Eastern Pennsylvania, but the the one who uh, worked in Western Pennsylvania, his name was Sam Rich. He arrived in 19 in the fall of 1921, and and he opened uh, uh, an office uh, in downtown Pittsburgh, and uh, and at first secretively. There was a sign that said something like advertising on the door, and, but uh, he appeared here in 1921, and the, and the first groundwork was laid in that year. But 1922 is really the year that uh, you have the first um, cross burnings, um, Johnstown, Altoona area by February or so, um, Allegheny County by March and April. How did they recruit? Well, the recruitment techniques are very effective. This is really, you know, really explains the timing. You know, you say, well, 1921, and why do I begin in 1921? Because in 1920, after the Klan had existed for about five or six years, it had been sort of re-founded by William J. Simmons in 1915. Um, didn't really go very, very far. By, by about 1920, or right around that time, certainly by the end of 1919, there were about 5,000 members, and they were mainly in Georgia, a few in Alabama. It really had gone nowhere. But uh, in, the, in 1920, uh, he hired uh, an organization called the Southern Publicity Association. Um, and it was uh, run by individuals named Clark and Tyler. Tyler was a woman, Elizabeth Tyler. Um, and Edward Clark was the name of, the, of her partner. And they developed a technique for marketing the Klan, kind of modern sales techniques in a lot of ways. And what they did was, they began to hire, a hire is kind of a loose term for this, but to, to gather together maybe, I should put it, um, recruiters who were known as Kleagles and uh, sent them not just throughout the South, but eventually into the Midwest, into the Southwest, into the Northeast and, and various places. Now, they didn't actually pay them a salary, but they got a significant amount of the initial fee, it was called a click token, of $10 a. with K, almost everything's with a K, right? Um, uh, they, they received $4 out of that original 10, each recruiter. So they made their money on a, you know, on a um, piecemeal basis, right? I mean, they, they got $4 for each new recruit once that recruit paid the $10, plus the money for the, uh, for the regalia, which they, the recruiters didn't get. And, and so they would, you know, fan out, and, and they had, you know, clan literature and certain things they focused on. And then their goals, and, you know, here we'll just, you could talk about Western Pennsylvania. It would be the same if they were in Indiana. It would be the same if they were in New Mexico. It would be the same if they were in California or even Alabama. They, they would show up kind of unannounced in a community. could be a city. could be a little town. could be a rural area. It'd show up unannounced uh, and start to make some connections with local leaders. Ministers, Protestant ministers would be uh, on that list. Local politicians. Um, um, heads or leadership from lodges, masons, for example, and they would meet with them. Some would be interested, probably some not. They would try to find out who might be interested once they begin to develop that network. They would try to get some of those people to join the, join the clan, pay the initiation fee, look to organize a so-called clavern, also with a K, which was, a, you know, that was a local lodge, was a clavern. And so they would start top-down. They, they would not hold meetings initially, public or even private meetings, just one-on-one -on -one or small groups, and, um, and, and look to get that kind of leadership. And then try to convince some of those people 
to themselves work locally as Klegels. So they're relying on, on people to join the ranks of the recruiters. Uh, that's what happened in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, you know, there's realization here in western Pennsylvania that, you know, that outsiders needed not just the support of locals. They needed, they needed those people to take the leader to lead. Not, not that the others wouldn't make some money on this. They were looking to make money, the outsiders, you know, especially early on. But they had to find people who had connections. They had uh, people that had a certain credibility. Some of them were salesmen. Uh, the first two individuals in in, uh, in Western Pennsylvania that Sam Rich, you know, hired really as Klegels were they had background in sales, and uh, were interested in the Klan, and had been member. They, they joined in 1921 and, and began recruitment after that, and so they already had some connections and they could connect with people because they were from the they were from the region and they would certainly make that clear and they would start traveling around a bit and and then you know find you know it was really a kind of a, you know try to develop the network find other people who would want to be Klegels in the towns and communities and the cities. <clears throat> and ultimately, once they got to that stage, they looked to have public meetings and they, they would hold public meetings where they would just advertise local newspapers. Um, were ads in the papers? Ads, on the, pa ads in the papers, <clears throat> um, um, placards up on poles, some word of mouth. And, and, and uh, in that case, they'd have a fairly prominent speaker give a pretty, you know, innocuous kind of speech about, you know, general goals of the Klan. And it could be in a theater, you know, it could be in a lodge hall, it could be in a school, it could be in a church. They often tried to find uh, church, churches where they could have in their, not, you know, not in the pews, but in their meeting halls. Uh, sometimes out in the woods, sometimes in a barn, I mean, they, wherever they could get a, a place and, uh, and have these so-called open meetings. But more importantly, what they also did is they distributed cards to people who they thought were potential members. And these were, uh, and they set up so-called closed meetings. And at those meetings, um, they were not as vague about their goals. They would often talk about uh, their platform in terms of being overtly anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, anti-black. You say in your book they were primarily an anti-Catholic organization. That's, where, that's true. In Western Pennsylvania it was true. And, was there and, a lot of Catholics in Western Pennsylvania? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, the, the uh, couple decades leading up to the 1920s, actually more than that, but, but you'd had just incredible um, growth of, uh, of population in the United States and, and in Pennsylvania. You know, the, in, in 1900, there were, you know, a little more than 75 million people living in the United States. There were about a little over 6 million living in, in, in Pennsylvania. Well, by 1920, that, those numbers had gone up to 105 million, and in Pennsylvania, almost um, 9 million. That's about a 40% or more increase, and a large percentage of that were immigrants from uh, Eastern and Southern Europe, and they were from Catholic areas. And so you had this really huge increase in population in the United States, in Pennsylvania, in particularly Western Pennsylvania, from Italy, from Poland, from Slovakia, from places where people were in fact Catholic. Um, the Pittsburgh Diocese, which included actually not just Allegheny County, but the um, nine counties around it, estimated that about 25% of the population in 1920, or maybe it was a couple of years after that, 25% were Catholic. Now, that doesn't mean they all went to church, but I mean, that means that they were of Catholic background and they came from, from those areas. So you had a large influx of Catholics in this area. Um, there were certainly places that there were not a lot of Catholics. Um, 
in some of the more rural counties, um, but certainly around Allegheny County and into Westmoreland and Blair and Indiana and those counties had a large Catholic population. So when the Klegels were trying to recruit, what was their pitch? I mean, they'd say, John, oh, you yeah. should join the Klan. This is why. This is right. what we want to do. And, uh, you know, let's face it, the, the main uh, impetus, now, the anti-Catholic, you know, anti-black, anti-immigrant, you know, agenda, I mean, it was, was a part of it. But, but a lot of it had to do with immigration restriction because um, there was a, uh, a movement already underway uh, to restrict immigration. Uh, in the United States. And of course, where would they be restricting but from those areas in Southern and Eastern Europe. So they talked about immigration, they talked about, and often they were very exaggerated, but the power, the growing power of Catholics and the Pope, you know, determining policy in the United States and that sort of thing. Um, but also, of course, prohibition. Because prohibition, uh, you know, begins in 1920. And, uh, and the supporters of prohibition tended to be Protestants, didn't mean some of them weren't hypocrites and they were drinking. Of course, it was true, but the, the uh, you know, the, you know the, the Protestant majority in this area or, or in the country tended to favor a prohibition. The, you know, the, the Catholic minority from those places that I mentioned, and, and you throw the Irish into that mix too, you know, they didn't buy into the idea of prohibition. And besides, they knew it was aimed at them. Because there were a lot of hypocrites, let's face it, there were a lot of, I mean, you know, the, the Hardy White House had alcohol in it from the beginning, right? And there were a lot of local clubs that legally actually had liquor because if they stockpiled it before uh, 1920, they could keep it. And so a lot of people stockpiled it and so they were drinking, um, you know, there was a lot of drinking going on. But they didn't want the, you know, the, the working class and especially the sort of immigrant working class uh, doing the drinking, you know. So there was a lot of hypocrisy there. So they would talk about prohibition. They would, they would. They would certainly talk about white supremacy. Um, they would talk about various moral reforms as well. Um, you know, they saw, you know, increased industrialization, urbanization impacting the family, and so they did talk about those things as well. They actually talked about a lot of so-called planks that many people would have agreed with at the time. Uh, it wasn't so much that the basic ideas of, of the of the Klan, whether if they were talking about immigration or if they were talking even about race would have been out of step with the majority of the population. It was their tactics <laughs> that people were opposed to. It was the law breaking, even though they claimed to be in favor of law and order. It was the law breaking, it was the vigilanteism. It was the uh, often uh, you know, hatred associated with their attitude towards Catholics and immigrants and blacks and well, Jews. I want to read something here. You say, start off the book, 1922, uh, the people of Monongahela yes. <clears throat> witnessed the first cross burning um, and it was the fiery apparitions were a signal and warning to bootleggers and gamblers that yeah. the Klan had been duly organized and would take action against violators of the class. Right. And you think of them as being anti-African-American, anti-Catholic, but here they were taking on the bootleggers and the gamblers. The thing is that the bootleggers and the gamblers were often associated with those immigrant groups, at least in the minds of many people. But it, you know, that, was a, that was a statement made by the local newspaper. And, and so I'm not going to say that that's code, but there are, you know, people are lined up, right, in, 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 in certain, uh, you know, certain perspectives that they have. And so you can see that prohibition is already, you know, in, in the mix there. And that's, 19, that's 1922. That's two years after prohibition has gone in, into place. But already people know that it is, it, is, it is being widely ignored in many places and, in fact, in, in many areas um, openly. Now, in that year, 
Pennsylvania elected a governor, and one of the major planks of Gifford Pinchot was the support of prohibition. He was himself a teetotaler, and he was genuinely committed, almost radically committed to prohibition. And, and so it was, you know, uh, an, an important part of, of um, political planks even at the time. Uh, and so the state police were running around uh, breaking up a lot of, you know, speakeasies and places like that in, in Pennsylvania. Well, but there was still a lot of illegality, right, going on, too. Was membership in the Klan thought to be respectable? Um, I think that varies, uh, you know, from place, from place to place, even within, you know, western Pennsylvania. Uh, people wouldn't be hiding their identities if they thought that everybody would be, would be embracing it. Um, but there, would, there certainly would be support beyond the actual membership. There would be opposition as well, even among Protestants. We don't want to be, you know, pretending here or, uh, you know, falsely, um, you know, uh, placing the brush of a taint or the tainted brush on every Protestant. Because some people, again, focusing on, on Klan um, hatreds and, and also the, you know, the image of the Klan in the Reconstruction era, which did not have a particularly positive image. I mean, there were lynchings and other, uh, other very violent acts associated with the Reconstruction Era Klan. And this 20s Klan, in many ways, was modeled off after that. So people would automatically be rejecting ideas of the Klan. And, and certainly the intelligentsia, um, news, uh, newspaper editors in large numbers, uh, magazine editors, uh, they were very skeptical of, of, of the Klan. And, uh, uh, but there were, you know, there were lots and lots of individuals who, in fact, had quite a bit of status. I mean, it was... You know, at least one member of the state legislature was a Klansman openly uh, a Klansman. The mayor of Wilkinsburg was a Klansman openly uh, a Klansman. And so there, 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 you know, legitimacy, there was an element of that, um, you know, especially at first, I would say. So the, the Ku Klux Klan first started, as you said, during Reconstruction right. in the 1870s. Um, and it's that organization ceased to be? It did. It was, you know, partly because of efforts by the federal government, the Klan Act and, and other legislation uh, banned its activities, and it was involved in a lot of illegal violent activities. And, um, uh, and it did certainly help usher in the Jim Crow era, so it was successful in that way. And, of course, after 1876, um, you know, basically Southern whites were back in control of the government, and you have, you know, Jim Crow well entrenched within the next few years in the South, and you might say that the Reconstruction Klan had done its job. And it disappeared. I mean, it was virtually gone. There were little enclaves here and there, people who still associated themselves with the Klan, but that was quite limited. I mean, it virtually did not exist. And that's, you know, William J. Simmons um, looked to reestablish re it. He really was reestablishing re it virtually from scratch in 1915. Well, you say in, in your book that it was the movie Birth of a Nation yeah, that sparked right. a resurgence? That's correct. You know, the first feature-length film made by an American uh, director, uh, D.W. Griffiths, uh, glorified the, the, the Klan, um, the Reconstruction-era Klan, and it showed them, you know, riding around and burning crosses, which, by the way, the Reconstruction-era Klan never did. They didn't burn crosses. They didn't. No, that actually came from The Klansman, which was a book by Thomas Dixon uh, that was popular, uh, that The um, Birth of a Nation was based on. It was based on that novel. And in that novel, uh, Dixon had, uh, you know, Klansmen burning crosses but they, in the Reconstruction era, but they didn't do that. They burned down barns and people's houses, but they didn't burn any crosses. And so it was a fiction. It was actually a, a novel fiction. that... Could... Yes, it was actually adopted from the novel by, by Simmons because the very first thing he did when he, um, <clears throat> when he you know, revived the Klan, just as the birth of a nation was opening in Atlanta, he got 15 of his charter members to 
make their way up on Stone Mountain. He had dragged the cross up there himself, and they burned a cross on top of Stone Mountain uh, to commemorate the opening of Birth of a Nation, uh, which showed burning crosses. But that was when it began. It, that burning crosses was something that, that, that Simmons uh, began uh, in 1915. And as, as I said, it didn't really go very, very, very far at that point, but boy, there was a lot of burning of crosses in western Pennsylvania in the, in the early 1920s. Well, it sounds like from your book, the, some of these crosses were pretty big. Eventually, yeah, I don't know if you, you know, noticed that, but they got bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger. I mean, yeah, there's, I have accounts in there of 50-foot crosses, 70-foot crosses. They just kept getting bigger and bigger. As the, uh, as the rallies got bigger and they were looking for more excitement for the membership, they burned massive crosses, and they were. And, and you know, Western Pennsylvania has like the perfect to topography for burning crosses. Stick them on top of a hill, and people can see them from, from miles around. I want to ask you about something about, <clears throat> you have a couple of attacks that the Klan made on people, and one was um, 1922, uh, William Hollingsworth. Uh, <clears throat> they took him from his home, yeah. shaved off half of his mustache, cut the hair on the side of his head, branded the letter K on his forehead. Klan officials lectured Hollingsworth on the poor care he was affording his mother, whom he left in the attic unattended. And then um, there was another member they, they severely beat because he was mistreating and being unfaithful to his wife. Right. Those aren't the kind of things you associate the Klan with. You right. Uh, the, the Klan, you know, as you see elsewhere in the book, especially after that first year, uh, they targeted people. They tar targeted African Americans. They, they targeted Catholics. Uh, they targeted people for various reasons. But the Klan agenda also included moral reform. And it's actually not surprising that they did some of that first because that would add an air of legitimacy, right? More people are going to accept that. If you, if you show up at the home of, you know, a black farmer because he's black, well, some people would be, you know, would not look at that so favorably. But if it's a, a guy who's got his, his mother locked in the attic, that's a, lot, that's a lot easier to justify. So, yeah, some of the very earliest ones. I mentioned that because it's really sort of the first forays that, that I have evidence of anyway into vigilantism. Um, now, they were predisposed in that direction, but they didn't really, um, you know, really, it was, that, that really hap begins happening in large measure in 1923 and 1924, the Vigilante Acts uh, in larger numbers. You also say in the book the, the group um, claimed to support the Constitution, not law-breaking, but men in office must enforce the law or get out. Yeah, right. So they saw themselves as defenders of the Constitution? Yes, yeah, so there, there was obvious hypocrisy in that, as many, many newspaper editors and others saw. So we, we, you know, they would say, we, we don't support lawbreaking, but yet they would take law into their own hands, so, which is, you know, vigilantism. It's, it is lawbreaking. So it was one of many contradictions in the Klan. I mean, the, the, the organization was formed, in many ways, based on uh, contradiction, and that was one of them, is that, yeah, and they, and they often tried to phrase that. They tried to massage that in a way. That, that where they said, well, we're forcing, well, you know, we're forcing politicians out of office. And sometimes they even said, well, we'll do it through the ballot. But they didn't always say they did it through the ballot. You know, uh, they, they tried to force people out in any way they could. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, they used law-breaking to support, uh, you know, law-abiding law behavior or whatever. I mean, it was, it was contradictory. It was hypocritical. But How often would they do something? How often would there be an incident that the Klan decided, we'll target this yeah. person or this Right. Group? Well, first of all, um, that is the area of research that is most difficult to determine. You know, when people break the law, they have this habit of not, <laughs> not keeping a record of it, right? And, and uh, in, in the 1930s, um, a uh, uh, politi political science, a PhD student named Emerson Lauchs, 
interviewed a lot of Klansmen after really the Klan had virtually disappeared in western Pennsylvania. And he, he interviewed a lot of Klansmen for uh, a dissertation and, and ultimately a book that he wrote, and, uh, which was based uh, quite a bit on, on interviews with Klansmen. And uh, he said that basically every, you know, that the, the Klan said that it happened in virtually every clavern. And there were 200 of them in western Pennsylvania. So some of the evidence on that doesn't exist. In fact, he didn't even recount very much in the book because, you know, the people he was talking to were either saying, look, you can't put this in there, you know, or they just wouldn't tell him. Now, there were some examples that are in there, and I do mention some of those, and some of them I could find in newspapers. But, but you know, a lot of that, you know, that was not something that was covered in the newspapers. So, you know, I, I had to uncover as much as I could. It's probably the tip of the iceberg. If, uh, you know, Lauks, uh, from talking to a lot of Klansmen, you know, determined that they were all that all of the 200 clavards were doing it well then he's you know probably not exaggerating it so they so it did it did happen um, you know did it happen you know every week did it happen every month did it happen all the time did it happen in all the clavards no it, it didn't and in fact uh, many uh, scholars of the clan you know uh, do characterize the clan i think somewhat falsely that well, they really weren't that violent an organization because, you know, they only, only did these things part of the time. But to me, that's kind of the same argument of saying a, a serial killer is not really a murderer because he only kills people once in a while. You know, it, 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 yeah, they, they only were involved in vigilante acts part of the time. They certainly did other things that were confrontational uh, and led to riots and other, you know, mayhem. Um, but just because, you know, <laughs> the vigilante acts don't happen every week, or even every month doesn't mean they're not vigilantes. <laughs> so it happens a lot. I think that's what I would say. How often did they target African Americans? And if they targeted right. somebody, what did they do? Okay. Well, um, they did target African Americans, and in fact, uh, many of the very first forays into fairly dramatic vigilanteism, the targets were black. Even though the population of African Americans in Western Pennsylvania was quite small, even in Pittsburgh, less than ten percent. Allegheny County, only 4.5%. Even in the surrounding counties to Allegheny, only 3 to 5%. So it was a fairly small population. But you could get away with that because, first of all, you know, who was the most powerless group uh, of all groups in, in uh, western Pennsylvania? It, it would be African Americans. Less likely to report anything, uh, any actions taken against them. But um, nonetheless, you know, not just easy targets, but you know, targets that would satisfy the membership. Because let's face it, white supremacy was a part of it. So there's a couple of episodes that I describe in the book. There was a, a farmer who lived in uh, near Burgettstown, in a rural area near Burgettstown, and uh, he managed a farm that was owned actually by, by a uh, middle-aged uh, white woman. In fact, he lived in the same house with his family. He had a, a wife and children. They lived in the same house with, with this woman. And this occurred in, uh, in 1923. Um, knock on the door late at night. He kind of lives in the middle of nowhere outside of Burgettstown. Goes through the door. He's got a gun, right? Uh, you know, and uh, two guys standing there, and they're wearing civilian clothing, and they say their car went into a ditch. And he was skeptical. They're in the middle of nowhere. But nonetheless, he invited him into his house. He told his son to go get the mule and see if they could pull the car out. Well, with that, they grabbed his gun. And uh, so he makes his way quickly up the stairs right behind uh, the entrance there and uh, grabs a shotgun. It happened to be unloaded and goes into a room, locks the door. And 20 Klansmen come in behind the two and they go up the stairs. And uh, by that point, as they're heading up the stairs, the, the owner of the house uh, comes out and she confronts them. And, you know, what are you doing in my house? You know, that sort of thing. And um, 
and they explained to her that, um, you know, that they, that they are, are there because uh, they heard that he had been cheating her out of money and cheating other farmers and, and uh, out of money in the area and transactions. And besides, he shouldn't be living in the same house with her, with, of course, his family. And she says, well, none of those things are true. Um, he is living in the house here. His family lives in the house. It's a big house. They live over there, and, you know, I live down here. Anyway, she convinces him to open the door, um, and he's got a shotgun there. <laughs> and they go inside, 20 Klansmen or so. They go inside, and they're standing on one side of the room, and he's standing on the other um, near the window. And they tell him that he's got five days to vacate the area. This is an area he'd lived for 30 years. The last, well, I don't know how many years, 10 years or 12 years or something, living in that house, managing that farm. And, uh, and so as they press a little bit closer to him and he sees that they are not listening to reason, he uh, basically pushes open the window, jumps out. He knows where he's going. He jumps out onto the porch <laughs> uh, roof, jumps down into a cornfield and hides. They can't find him. They go back out, they go out there, but it's his farm, right? They can't find him. They're tramping down the corn, but it's, um, it's late summer. The corn's high. <laughs> they can't find him. So he makes his way about 10 miles to a train station, gets on, takes a train, goes to Pittsburgh, actually, and, um, and uh, goes to uh, um, police headquarters in, in Pittsburgh and tells them what happened. Now, he was in Washington County, not, you know, not Allegheny County, and the uh, Chief of Detective says, you know, yeah, this sounds bad, but, you know, I, I got I to call, I can call the state police, and I'm going to call, I'm going to call the Washington officials. And so he does that, and he tells them and uh, um, promises from the return phone calls uh, from Washington County authorities that, that they will investigate that. So he goes back home, and the investigation starts. Local Washington officials, state police don't get involved. They're too busy chasing after prohibition violators, apparently. Uh, and they, you know, there's reports in the newspapers. The Pittsburgh papers pick up the story. They carry it quite a bit, actually, for the next few days, and, but so does the Washington paper. And they report that they, yeah, they confirm that, yeah, people were tramping down the corn, that they believe there were people there, and a local detective looking at it and says, yeah, they were, they were Klansmen, and they were, they were Klansmen, and he knew the identities of some, and, and arrests were imminent, right? Well, a few days later, arrests do happen, but of the black farmer and, <laughs> and the woman who owned the who owned the house. Um, not for the Vigilante Act, but uh, for the immorality of him living in, living in the same house. And he's arrested and he's, he's thrown in jail. She was not thrown in jail. He eventually um, uh, pleaded uh, guilty to uh, immorality. That was a crime, <laughs> immoral act, and uh, spent six months in the county workhouse for living in that house. Um, no. No criminal proceedings against the Klan, which was the norm. I mean, almost every, any vigilante act, that was, that was the case. Um, so if that was somebody who, you know, maybe was not black, maybe a Catholic priest, there might be proceedings against the Klan, right, in that one. They, they could get away with it because, let's face it, the victim, mainly in that case, was black. Now, the, the, the woman who owned the house paid a fine as well, but no jail time. She paid a $25 fine, which, by the way, was a lot of money in, at that time, but she paid a fine. That was it. But, you know, what the Klan did was not considered illegal. They, they just barged into somebody's house and threatened them. You mentioned riots that took right. place at some Klan rallies, and you say that the Grand Dragon, Sam Richie, you referred to, often said in his office that it takes the riots to swell the ranks yeah, of the yeah. Klan. What, what was a Klan riot like? Well, 
<clears throat> first of all, the, the reason that he said that was that the, the Klan increased its membership to the rather lofty numbers that it had, you know, that uh, eventually 300,000 in the state, 200,000 or so in, in, in Western Pennsylvania, though not all at the same time, but pretty large numbers, right? Um, because, you know, not just of the ideas of the Klan, but because of what the Klan did or what they promised to do. And they, they were, you know, they characterized the organi organization as one that was committed to action, action taken against their enemies. And their enemies certainly included Catholics, their enemies included African Americans. Their, their enemies included prohibition, uh, people who were violating prohibition. They, they were, there were various enemies, right, that they were. You list them in the back. Uh, yeah. They were uh, the Jewish, Celtic, Mediterranean, and Alpine peoples. Yes, that comes directly from clan literature, right, in that order. In that order, right, exactly, yeah. And so those are their enemies. They, they, they were not shy about using that term. Uh, and so it was taking dramatic action against those groups that, you know, that, that's what really built the ranks more than anything else. My book is more about acts, actions, things people did, not what people thought. And so the, you know, the, the organization had to live up to that. And one of the most exciting things that they, they could do, right, was, uh, you know, not just go burn a cross someplace, but, you know, burn a cross on someone's lawn and, and you know, the, the element of, you know, of intimidation and threat associated with that, or to parade in areas where lots of Catholics lived. And they did that in, on various, in various instances. Um, they liked to march by a Catholic church. They liked, to, they liked to march in areas where they knew they would have uh, individuals who would not be uh, in agreement with them, in fact, would be targets of their wrath. And, and this gave participants the opportunity for the excitement, right, associated with that. Not just the mysteries of the Klan wearing robes and ha secret handshakes and watching spectacular pyrotechnic, pyrotechnics or something like that, or going out in the middle of the woods or on a hill or something and burn a cross, but to actually march, you know, with the visors down. And, and, you know, of course, that happened in Carnegie and that happened in Lilly, Pennsylvania, and two massive riots where they, these were direct challenges to the Catholic population of those of those places. And when the Klan marched in those areas at night, by the way, they knew perfectly well that there was going to be conflict. Now, did they know that people would be shot? Did they know people would die? Um, you can't necessarily argue that. But you knew that there would be serious uh, confrontation when, the, um, when Sam Rich, the King Cleveland Grand Dragon of Pennsylvania, or, or even in the case of Carnegie, because the order was given by the Imperial Wizard, the head of the Klan at that time, whose name was Hiram Wesley Evans. Uh, Simmons had been pushed out of the order before then. And Evans gave the order to do it. He knew it was going to happen when they marched into Carnegie that had a population that was half Catholic and had a lot of Irish, including the mayor of the, of the city was a, was, a, was a person of Irish descent. Uh, they, they knew it was going to happen. So when the riots occurred, it was the locals attacking the yes. Klan and not the Klan attacking locals? Well, uh, you shouldn't really say that because really in the, in the second case in Lilly, it was more of the Klan attacking the locals. They opened fire on them. But in the, in the Carnegie episode, um, about, there were 25,000 Klansmen who gathered on a hill outside of Carnegie um, in, uh, in August of 1923. And they decided to march through, through Carnegie. And uh, they actually crossed. Uh, they didn't cross in the spot that they initially were going to cross, but they went across the Chartier's Creek um, 
right near a Catholic church and in, in an area not far from where a lot, a lot of Irish people lived. And they wanted to march in that in, the, in that area anyway. They wanted they wanted a, they, they wanted they wanted to march in a way that would be confrontational. And so they got to this bridge uh, uh, spanning the, the Chartres Creek. There's a bridge there today. It was new, new one was built in 1926, but there's a bridge that's similar to that today. And they got to this bridge, and there were all these townspeople on the other side, and and they were armed with bricks, and they were armed with um, clubs, and they were prepared for the you know for the Klan to, to come in. And there was a standstill at the bridge. And, County authorities, uh, county detectives, county police, uh, local police presence was there. They tried to prevent the conflict from occurring, but eventually the order was given by the Klan leadership that they would march across the bridge. And uh, there were about 3,500 marchers, um, and not all of them got across the bridge. Only a minority did, but they, they came across the bridge, and at that point the conflict began. And, and it was a really, it was a, it was a rather brutal hand-to-hand combat kind of situation as the Klan tried to make their way up very narrow streets there. And, um, and so um, there were shots fired. Klansmen were sh- certainly firing most of, the, most of the shots, though many of them were probably being fired in the air. People were hit on both sides. But the only fatal shot was uh, killed a Klansman. And again, no one really knows who fired that shot. I mean, it could have been fired by a Klansman. No one really knows. But um, Certainly some townspeople were armed as well, though. The Klan tended to come armed to these. They're the ones who usually had a lot of the guns. Uh, in Lily, the next year, there was an episode where they, also marching at night, um, uh, local, locals turned a fire hose on them as they were reboarding the train after uh, a march through the city and after they burned some crosses. And at that point... Um, a shot rang out. It may have been fired, probably was actually fired by a local person, and a Klansman was shot. And then, just generally, I mean, hundreds of Klansmen opened fire on innocent townspeople, including children. And uh, not too many women were on the street right there at that time, but they, they, they shot at least 25 people in a one sided gun battle. So that would certainly not be something where you could, you know, say the townspeople. Have, you know, we're really responsible. Well, you, you do quote some townspeople as saying, um, boys, get your guns and get your gun and kill them. One yeah. of we're hearing among countless verbal attacks. Eventually, the assault turned sign- physical with the cry of, there are some of the yellow-backed Protestant sons of bitches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were being, they were confronted by, uh, by antagonistic uh, townspeople marching through their town, a town that was about 80% Catholic. Uh, Irish, where, Italian. Where is Lily? Lily is um, is actually about t- uh, twenty miles from Altoona. Um, this it's it's not far from Hollidaysburg. Um, so it's it's in it's it's uh, a railroad town um, in the mountains, and uh, um, mainly mining uh, at the time. And um, it had a very large um, Catholic population. Um, again, majority population of of of, of Catholics and. Uh, it was chosen for that reason. There had been some incidents there, and the Klan had great difficulty burning crosses there because every time they tried to burn a cross, they got run out of town. Um, were there trials as a result of that? There were. There were trials, and uh, actually, um, uh, uh, some Klansmen got off, but I think fourteen or uh, fifteen Klansmen were found uh, guilty and actually served um, about a year of jail time uh, for inciting what technically they didn't call a riot but an affray. And some townspeople, uh, about a dozen townspeople, also were found guilty. They were actually tried together as a group uh, for, the, for the riot. No one, however, was uh, found guilty of murder. Uh, and, in fact, only one Klansman was 
even charged, and he was the guy who was shot at the fire hose, and so he clearly uh, did not shoot a, uh, shoot a, a weapon. So um, Klansmen kind of, they got away with, with shooting people and killing, they, they killed three people uh, and uh, wounded quite a few uh, in Lilly. Who were the Knights of the Flaming Circle? The Knights of the Flaming Circle. Uh, quite a name. It, it is, yeah. Um, in uh, mid-August of 1923, people in Kane, <laughs> in uh, uh, southern uh, McCain County, um, saw out in actually a bit of a rural area, they saw this flaming ring that was, you know, burning uh, railroad fuses, you know, up here in a, in a meadow. And then reports, uh, you know, letters to local newspapers, and they they uh, announced themselves originally as the Knights of the the Knights of the Blazing Ring, and then later, within a short time, Knights of the Flaming Circle, um, an anti-Klan organization that was open to all members who wanted to join, unless they were unless they belonged to the Klan. So, it was open to African Americans, it was open to Catholics, it was open to Jews, it was open to anybody you know who who was an opponent of the, of, of the Klan. And, and uh, chapters did apparently pop up. There's not a great deal of uh, uh, surviving records on this, but uh, th there were a lot of apparently um, branches of this. Um, there were some violent confrontations in Ohio involving the Knights of the, of the, of the Flaming Circle. Um, there were some in Illinois as well. But clearly there was evidence of, of uh, local chapters of, of these and uh, Sometimes they would burn the, their ring right after the Klan had burned a cross, or reports of that, in the same exact spot. Um, so there was the threat there of, uh, of opponents. And, and the thing is, the more popular the Klan became, became um, the more opposition that also uh, emerged. And it emerged in that form, and it emerged in some other forms as well. Did you find much press coverage that was favorable toward the Klan? There certainly was some. Uh, you can identify some newspapers that clearly were... Um, um, gathering information from Klansmen themselves. They did include a lot of promotional information uh, about the local Klan activities. They would advertise events so that the Altoona paper was like that. One of the Johnstown papers was like that. The Newcastle And they clearly said paper. Ku Klux Klan. Oh, yeah, yeah they, they, they did that. They, they advertised in local, in local newspapers. There's, did you go through a lot of microfilm to find I did. Anything? In fact, that's, that was a very time-consuming process because, um, you know, for the most part, it was just looking, you know, looking uh, through... Uh, edition after edition after edition, um, because a lot of that um, is not digitized. There's a limited amount of digitized um, uh, holdings in, in newspapers. So, for example, the, you know, the Pittsburgh papers that I went through, um, you know, they, they weren't, you know, generally not digitized. I'm, you know, just, <laughs> just this for years uh, doing that. I did look at, I wanted to get newspapers that basically had covered all 25 counties that I focused on in Western Pennsylvania. So I looked at a lot of newspapers and and I did, I did uh, find a lot about the Klan. And what, one advantage of doing that, by the way, the K is not a typical letter that you see, especially on the front page. And eventually, you become uh, attuned to looking, at, looking for the K. <laughs> so it made well, it easier to do my uh, searches. And then there was something called the Imperial Nighthawk. The Imperial Nighthawk was, um, yes, that was the official organ. It was a weekly... Um, the weekly newspaper of of the Klan. It was uh, mainly a promotional thing. Nationally or in West Nationally, nationally, and it was uh, distributed uh, uh, locally. Um, what kind of reading does that make? Well, it, it it had a lot of coverage of local activities. That was um, what what the Imperial Nighthawk was mainly designed to uh, to do um, was to you know be distributed to local membership, 
and to cover it covered uh, activities in Western Pennsylvania. It, it covered extensively the Carnegie riot. Um, it it uh, did not cover Lilly very much. You know, you didn't really want to cover the one-sided gun battle. Did the Klan get involved in politics, running candidates? Yeah, uh, they did not. Um, in, in Western Pennsylvania, it was very limited. Um, it, it wasn't that they didn't support candidates; they did. Um, they were more concerned about the image of having political power than actually enjoying it. Sometimes they would actually wait till the last minute and, 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 and simply endorse somebody who was going to win, and they figured it was going to win. Uh, you know, uh, the Republican Party dominated local politics at the time virtually everywhere, and so they tended to support Republicans. Uh, and sometimes there were different, uh, you know, there was, you know, there were primary contests that were hotly, you know, hotly contested, and they would pick, you know, certain candidates. Um, they would sometimes, um, you know, secretly put things in people's mailboxes or put up placards. Um, um, but they did track politics fairly carefully. Uh, they used, um, you know, techniques of, you know, uh, they used detective, detective work. Um, they gathered information about local candidates. They wanted to know everything about candidates. They wanted to know about potential candidates. They certainly wanted to know their religion, but they wanted to know their views. Um, they wanted to know their background, and they actually, you know, kept track of that. It was the it was the role, actually, of, of local claverns to keep a record of local politicians uh, and what they stood for and what they did and, and most importantly, what their religion was. And sometimes their focus would simply to be to try to defeat Catholics. There's somebody I want to ask you about, and that was the mayor of Johnstown, <coughs> Joseph yes. Caulfield. Yeah. You say um, <coughs> he told a reporter for the Johnstown Democrat that he was ordering the immediate removal from Johnstown of every Negro who has not been a local resident for at least seven years. Yes. And black residents of the city were prohibited from holding public gatherings, and all African-American visitors were instructed to report to the police or mayor's office. Yes. That was his rule? While that he was, was, yes. And the Klan endorsed him? Like, well, the, yes, actually, uh, he did that, he claimed, in response to the fact that the Klan was, was burning crosses all over the place uh, at that time, because what had occurred... He had actually been out of town at that time, and what had occurred was that there was a, um, a shooting um, in an area that was occupied by, by African-American workers. And uh, the local newspaper said, you know, it was a moonshine-crazed, um, you know, uh, African-American worker who opened fire on police and, and killed three of them. And they caught the guy immediately, but, but uh, the police did. But rumors spread that uh, there were other, you know, African-American residents who were arming themselves and, and that there were going to be other actions taken. And, and so the Klan, you know, which was very powerful in that area anyway, uh, started burning a bunch of crosses. And so Caulfield claimed that he was actually looking to protect, you know, protect those individuals. Of course, that was totally illegal. I mean, he could not do that. But, but he ordered it, and uh, local, other local officials did not um, actually contest that because they actually were worried about violence. He ended up not getting the nomination anyway. He was involved in some scandals. Um, but uh, yeah, I want to read one of them. Yeah, this is another facet of this gentleman. During a water shortage in Johnstown in August of 1922, he told local brewers to begin producing beer in defiance of the Volstead Act. Yes, prohibition. He, even though he claimed he supported the Volstead Act um, because uh, there was a problem with uh, the quality of water at that, at that time. And so he, that got a lot of attention. It was actually uh, considered, it was called the Johnstown Flood of Beer. Uh, in, in newspapers throughout the country. 
And again, he, he had some kind of a convoluted argument that he was really just trying to demonstrate that local law, uh, law enforcement wasn't doing a very good job in defending the Volstead Act, uh, and he was just showing it. At the same time, there was a water shortage. That was a yeah, very odd thing. So he was a very uh, flamboyant guy. And, and actually, he would get reelected uh, governor at one, I mean, sorry, mayor at one time, but he also ended up in jail so, so at one point for uh, corruption. So uh, what caused the Klan to decline then? Uh, the decline of the Klan, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it. But, I mean, really the primary reason it declined, uh, particularly in western Pennsylvania, which is what I know about, was that uh, it, it, you know, in, in light of the riots, um, in light of uh, publicity surrounding other vigilante acts, its opponents became more strident in their efforts to um, damage the Klan. And their opponents realized that the Klan needed secrecy. It certainly needed secrecy for vigilante actions. And it needed secrecy, if, you know, if you're going to shoot down people in, in Lily, because one reason why no Klansmen were ever indicted for murder there was that no one knew who they were. They, they either had visors down, actually it was also dark at the time, it was nighttime, so, so it was hard to identify any Klansmen. Uh, even the, you know, the number of Klansmen that, that were even indicted for the, for the riot was very small because they couldn't identify very many of them. And so anonymity was important, and so their opponents started taking action to prevent them from marching with visors on, and there were local ordinances that did that. Some places uh, around the country, actually, it was uh, banned that they could march with their hoods and visors on. Um, also, um, their, their names were, were um, published in newspapers. There was an organization called the American Unity League. They would, they would get the names of, of uh, Klansmen by breaking into their offices and publish them in their journal, which was called Tolerance. Uh, the, the, uh, one of the Erie papers, the, the uh, Erie Times, I mean, they published, they, they found the license plate numbers of Klansmen. They, they, they spied on them, and then they published their names in the paper. They, they were able to secure a, uh, uh, some other Klan records, and they published the names of uh, Klansmen. And that could actually be very damaging, so also dangerous, you know, for vigilantes. And so it was actually in response to that and also into a response to a, another uh, really violent uh, riot that occurred uh, just across the border in Ohio in Niles, the infamous Niles riot where many Pennsylvania Klansmen were there, that the, the, the national organization began to pull back uh, from you know, not all vigilante acts uh, and certainly not all uh, parading, but they, they began to limit it extensively uh, beginning in 1925. And, you know, absent, I mean, just to put it simply, absent the thrills, you know, absent the, um, the, some of the mystery, uh, absent the um, ability for some, you know, Klansmen uh, to be involved in intimidation uh, and in some cases outright violent actions. The Klan began to melt away. Now there were other reasons. There were other reasons. Uh, the uh, yeah, I have to ask you about. There was a, a lawsuit where the national organization sued the Pennsylvania organization right. for what? For copyright of the use of the name <laughs> yes, of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, that actually happened after the Klan had basically disintegrated anyway. But and there were still some Klansmen left. Uh, that occurred in 1927. There were a few thousand, you know, maybe 10,000 left. Uh, you know, out of the 300,000 at that point in the entire state. And uh, what happened in that infamous case, which actually was tried right here in Pittsburgh, was that uh, the, the National Klan uh, decided, after banishing a number of uh, prominent members in Western Pennsylvania um, over conflicts uh, leader, about leadership, um, that they would 
um, try to secure all the monies that they had collected that those claverns had had, had by you know actually doing away with the entire entire clavern and then and also banishing some of its leadership. Uh, they they decided uh, you know that that they would sue them uh, and try to get you know looking for financial gain. But among the people that they named was actually a very prominent attorney and a member of the state legislature. And they fought back. And they actually won in court. Uh, and in the process revealed many of the violent uh, actions of the Klan that had occurred. Uh, not just in western Pennsylvania, but elsewhere, but primarily in western Pennsylvania. And that included the Lilly Riot, the Carnegie Riot, uh, some kidnappings, uh, a variety of other uh, episodes that they, that they were able to reveal that the Klan didn't even contest. I mean, they, they fought back, but they didn't even contest it because you had actually Klansmen arguing against Klansmen or maybe former Klansmen arguing against Klansmen. And they both knew what had happened. They, they were participants or they were certainly aware of it. So it was difficult for Klan leadership or the Klan lawyers to basically say uh, in cross-examination, oh, wait a minute, you know, hey, that didn't happen. They knew that the people that they were talking to knew that it had happened. So put them in a difficult position. Is this your first book? This is not. Uh, 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 this is actually the first book I had done in quite a while, but uh, I had uh, written on the American peace movement before that point, which looks at violence in, in different ways, right? But it was, the, it, it was a, uh, a turn towards a new subject. I had actually written about the Klan in, uh, uh, in Virginia way back in, in, uh, in the 1980s, but I, I, I you know, turned to this subject as really a new topic for me. It's one reason why it took me a long time to do it. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with John Craig. He is the author of this book, The Ku Klux Klan in Western Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.